Uh, but this morning, uh, we are in the, the book of Mark. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what uh, your time in high school was like, but I grew up in a small town. And when I was younger, uh, I befriended this uh, young lady who uh, was uh, interesting. She was interesting because she was in southern Mississippi and she was a self-avowed atheist uh, whose grandmother had been into witchcraft. Um, And yet she began to become interested in Jesus and started to spend time uh, with me and some friends of mine in our church. And in the midst of this, um, you know, she was the kind of girl that you would have thought had everything that this world had to offer going for her. She had money, she was sharp, had lots of energy, and a brand new convertible. I mean, what else could you want in life? And so uh, we thought that she pretty much had everything going really well for her, uh, which is why I'll never forget the call that I got from her mother one night. Uh, I was sitting at home and uh, had the phone ring. Uh, That was back when it was attached to the wall. That used to be a thing. And uh, I picked it up and, um, and started, uh, I heard her mom crying in the background, and her mom said, Josh, uh, the, your, your friend, she has just cut herself again, and uh, needs you to come, if you could just come and, and help her. Now, of course, uh, at this time, I'm, I'm hearing cutting, and, and again, and I'm thinking, what in the world is she talking about? And so, um, but that's okay. Because uh, I had my Bible, so I picked it up like my Superman cape, and I, I drove off to her house. And moments later, I'm standing there confronted uh, with this dear friend of mine, uh, looking at her arm with cuts up and down it. And, and um, she's weeping, and she said, Josh, it's the only way that I can get the voices uh, to stop. The voices that tell me about how worthless I am, and about how God could never love someone as dirty and filthy as me. And so in that moment... I sat there and looked at this dearly beloved friend and uh, all I knew to do was, was to turn to God's word and I began reading scripture over her and, and I prayed for her. And I wish I could say that that was the only experience that I ever had like that with her, um, but that was a constant battle. You know, it's interesting that this morning we find ourselves in Mark 5 with a man that might remind you of a friend that you might have like that, uh, might remind you of this kind of person who seeks to inflict harm on themselves. See, we're right back in Mark, uh, our series in the Gospel of Mark, the amazing true story of Jesus. Uh, and this morning we find ourselves in verses 1 to 20, where we will find that Jesus displays his unparalleled power by delivering a demon-possessed man who was cutting himself, catch this, day and night. Uh, he was a man who was in constant agony under the possession of these demons. Now, I believe that there's a reason that Mark actually uses 330 words to describe the same story that Matthew only gives 150 words to. I think it's because for Mark, he sees something significant about God, us, and others that we need to see this morning. And he wants us to pay attention closely. Now, I know that some of you might be tested or tempted to question the relevance of this text to your life. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, I don't seek to cause harm to myself. Uh, but uh, not only that, I, I've never been possessed by a demon. I don't know anybody that's been possessed by a demon. I've had my uh, thoughts about some people, but I, I don't know anybody that actually were possessed by a demon. And so let me just give you two things to keep in mind. First, as we go through this, uh, demon possession, it might not be your normal experience. But brothers and sisters, I believe that this is a, a reality that still exists today. Uh, and second, we need to know that as we look at this text, that Mark wrote this gospel for the church. 
He wrote this for Christians like you and me. And he believed that this was important and helpful for us. And so we need to be reminded this morning that we are fighting spiritual forces, rulers and authorities in heavenly places with demonic forces that seek to destroy us. And we need to be awakened to that this morning as we look at this text. So uh, we need simultaneously to be encouraged this morning to see what we see in this text. And that's this. This is our big idea that we're going to be talking about this morning. It's this, that one Jesus silences the accusations of a legion of demons. One Jesus silences a legion of demons and the accusations that they bring against this man. And not only that, he releases spiritual captives to make disciples of those far from God. He releases spiritual captives to make disciples of those far from God. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. But first, uh, we're going to look at our first point this morning, which is this, uh, that a powerful legion of demons bows before Jesus. That's what we're going to find. Look at that in verses 1, in our first verses this morning, 1 to 5. Notice what it says. Mark 5, 1 to 5. Read there with me again. There it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." Now, we know that Jesus has just gone dog whisper on a storm. He stopped the wind and the waves at His very command. They bowed before Him. And here He steps off of that boat from the Sea of Galilee onto the shores of this Gentile uh, Decapolis. Uh, This village that was part of, or city-state that was part of this conglomerate of ten Gentile city-states. And in this region, what we know is, is that uh, it, it exists southeast of the Sea of Galilee, where modern-day Jordan is. I've been there. Uh, it is a pagan place with a long history of idolatry. And, and what we see here is fresh off that boat, after this amazing display of the power of God before the, uh, the elements of nature, we find a demon-possessed man erupts from the tombs where he lived to confront Jesus. Now, apparently, the spiritual bondage of the demons exercised over this man had grown progressively over time. Now, why would I say that? Well, because you'll notice that it says that no one could bind him anymore. Now, why would you add anymore? Well, it seems to be because uh, there had been a time that they had been binding him, but by this point, uh, he had grown stronger and the power of Satan had grown stronger over him to the degree that no longer could they bind this man anymore. He flexed with supernatural muscles that no one could restrain him. But quickly, notice five things about the result of this demonic, uh, this demonic possession that's over this man. Five quick things. We could say more. But one, he had obviously super strength. It's not normal, uh, at least in my house, that if you need to cut a chain, that you just like grab it and you tear it apart. That's not normal. He had super strength. Two, notice that he had isolated himself in the graveyards and the mountains. Uh, he did not want to be around people. Uh, that's the effects of uh, demons on you, uh, demonic oppression, Satan. He wants to isolate us. Third, he hurts others. This man hurt others. Uh, that's one reason that he needed to be restrained. People were fearful of what they would do to them. Not only that, fourth, he was hurting himself. 
He cut himself night and day. And fifth, he was always miserable. Always day and night. And always crying out and cutting himself. See, this guy seems to fit Alfred's statement. If, you, if you're a Batman fan, you'll hear lots of Batman quotes from me. But what Alfred uh, says to Bruce Wayne about the Joker, right? It says, some men just like to watch this world burn. I mean, that's exactly what we find here. Uh, he, he is a kind of guy that likes to see uh, others be in danger and hurt and harmed in himself. And, and he's just a walking dumpster fire. And that's the spirit of Satan that is in him, that is controlling him, that has given him this personality that he treats others in this way. Uh, we know from uh, Peter, Peter tells us what Satan's like. He says that he is like a roaming lion who is going back and forth seeking someone to devour as he roars. And he only, we are told, seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the ultimate reason this demoniac cries and cuts day and night. We know that the ultimate reason is because he is controlled by these evil forces. But I'm just curious when I, when I come to a text like this, what's the immediate reason or the experience that he must have had that would have led him to be uh, in this position where he is just so upset that he just wants to kill himself? Like, what is it that's brought him to this point? Well, I think that there is a more immediate reason that has brought him to this experience that we read about in this text. See, Revelation 12.10 speaks of the downfall of Satan. That's coming. Uh, But as it describes that, Satan is described as the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. In Revelation 12 and 10, do you hear it? Day and night, the accuser never rests and bringing up accusations to the Father about us. And let me tell you, also, he's bringing those accusations that go before the Father before you. He wants to hear you and see you understanding that you are accused before the Father. And in John 8.44, Jesus calls him the liar and the father of lies. And we know in Ephesians 6.10 that Paul reminds us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It might feel that way, but instead against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So catch what I think this might mean here. So much of the spiritual war that you and I face daily, day and night, takes place on the battlefield of our hearts and how we think about God, ourselves, and others. And so Satan accuses us with lies. He he lies to us about who we are so that we will explode our relationships both with God and others. Have you had a relationship that has been exploded because of some lie that you have believed about God or others? I promise you, you have. There's some way that we have thought wrongly about God. Let me just tell you, that is not of heaven, that's of hell. See, Satan accuses us and lies to us. And one of his most powerful tools, hear me, is half-truths. Half-truths that are actually whole lies. Right? Isn't that what he did with Jesus? Let me tell you about all of your authority. And then let me tell you about what I'm going to ask you to do so that you can maintain greater authority and have greater authority. He always wants to sort of blend in a truth with a lie so that he can capture your heart. And so Satan will use the truth. Sometimes even in the Scriptures... He'll even use the Bible itself and twist it in such a way that it will paralyze us. And my guess is that this super powerful man, that no chains could 
contain or restrain was subdued, at least in part, by the restless demonic voices of accusation and condemnation from the accuser, day and night, reminding him of his guilt and shame. So you don't have to rev up your imagination too much to guess what kinds of things these demons might have been whispering in the ear of this demoniac as they gained greater control over him. I mean, how could any God allow something like this to happen to you? Right? And he could probably remember every violent outburst. Right? And how he hated, he had been hated by those whom he treated. I mean, he was alone and isolated because he had no home to go to. I mean, just imagine. Like, he, he has nowhere to go. Others tried to chain him up like an animal. And I'm guessing that even his own mother, if she was still alive, no longer looked at him with tender affection, but with terror, and his father with shame. And I'm sure in all of that, these demons were saying, you are unloved, you are unlovable. You are wicked and irretrievable. And no one, no one can rescue you. And the more that he did, the more that he harmed others and himself, the more the evil one reminded him of it, accusing him. And the more the, roar, the lion roared, the more that he heard the, the, the roaring lion roaring out his accusations, and the more that he heard the roar of the lion, the more that he cut and cried, hoping to silence the demonic voices in his head. Do you see it? Like, accusation and condemnation led to self-destruction. And catch this. Maybe this morning you're not cutting yourself. Maybe you're not demon-possessed. But I'm guessing that all of us can learn something from this demoniac, this man that's been possessed. Maybe you're, this morning, you're paralyzed. You're paralyzed by the nearly audible playback loop of accusations against you. You know what I'm talking about in your mind, in your heart. The thoughts or the, the voices in your heads. Uh, friends, you need to know that those voices are not neutral. Thoughts are not neutral. Thoughts are subject to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And every good thought is of God and every evil thought of the devil, the accuser who assaults us with a mixture of half-truths and complete lies. Now, maybe this morning uh, your struggle is that you can't forget past sexual sins. Maybe you begin to argue with yourself, you know what, I've sinned so much in the past, maybe it just doesn't matter anymore, I can just keep on sinning. I mean, I, I really can't be delivered from this. I've struggled with this. I've fought it. I cannot win. I feel like the power that is out there is greater than the power that is in here. And so I just need to give up. Or maybe you feel alone. You feel unloved, unlovable. And you're willing to do anything just to feel loved and a part of something. But you hear again and again that no one could love you. Or maybe on other moments, maybe even the next moment, you think people ought to worship you, but they don't. Or maybe even think that you're too bad for the good news of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that He offers. Or you know, Christ has commanded you to be a disciple who makes disciples. You know that's true as a Christian. But the accuser says, what good could come from somebody like you? And all of a sudden you find your mouth goes silent. Please don't miss this. If you are truly a believer, you cannot be demon-possessed. But, but Satan would love to paralyze you from doing good by bombarding your heart with accusations. And for now, let me just simply say, we need something more than cute quotes and anecdotes or a really good self-help talk from Tony Robbins, right? 
We need something more than that if we're going to silence the accusations that are coming from the demons in hell. See, when the accuser comes, and he comes daily, we need a stronger defense in our own efforts. Friends, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to help us. We need someone who speaks a better word than the word that is coming from this world. Friends, look to Christ. And we'll get into that in a minute more, but I don't think that I would serve us well if I didn't just take a moment to speak to those who might be here this morning and are harming themselves. You know, we, as we look at statistics, we find that our children, our youth, are harming themselves more now than ever. The rates are going up tremendously. And so we need to be aware that uh, there might be someone that you love that you don't know that is causing harm to themselves right now, and maybe that's you and you're in this room this morning. And if you are, if you're that person and you cut yourself, my friend, uh, like my friend did, please don't misunderstand me this morning. You, you might be hearing this and think, oh, well, the pastor must be saying that I'm demon-possessed if I've, I've cut my arms. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I think that demon possession is still a real thing, but I'm not saying that that's what's happening to you. But I do believe that, um, that as you are here this morning, that there's something that you need to know. See, I, I simply want you to know that when you cut yourself, whether you realize it or not, you are actually taking part in something that is deeply religious. And you don't even know it. You're, you're actually engaging in a deeply ancient religious activity. See, just like in 1 Kings 18.28, where you'll remember there were 450 prophets of Baal who were in a God war with Elijah and were told that they began to cry out and to cut themselves until their blood actually gushed out to invoke the power of their false god. Now, there is something I believe in all of us that tells us that only blood can bring us peace. And I believe that ancient civilizations saw it. I think we still believe it deeply today. So here's the message. You can cut. And maybe it brings you peace for a couple of days until those accusations start to roll again and you sense a new need for new blood. It's a deadly cycle. But, but friends, you need to know that, that it's not just you that has felt this way. We even see this not even in pagan religions, but in the history of Israel. That God created a religious system for the Jews because they believed and God told them that life is in the blood. There is life in the blood and it's important and meaningful. And Jewish religion surrounded their cultic sacrifices in obedience to the law of Moses for forgiveness of sins. But catch this, in the Old Testament and in every other religion, the sacrifices never ceased. They only reinforce the enormity of our sinfulness. Why? Because the sacrificial system, hear me, it was never meant to be a destination. It was always meant to be a sign pointing to something greater. See, see, the the, the blood was really meant to, to prepare and anticipate something that we needed so much more. Our blood was not enough. We needed something more. And the Bible tells us That the reason that we need that blood is because we have sinned against God and that sin does a couple of things and maybe you felt this. Uh, It makes us guilty before God as a just God and it makes us filthy before Him as a holy God. See, we are guilty and filthy in our sin. And and so often, as as you hear, if you've had friends that have done this, you've noticed that they talk about how, how unclean they are. And I think that uncleanness is tied to the recognition of the fact that they are sinners before a holy and righteous God. And they need healing that only God can bring. See, 
We find here, please hear me, that every ancient religion requires some kind of blood sacrifice to please its God or gods, but only Christianity says God has already sacrificed the blood of His Son. See, God requires blood, but it's not yours. Your blood, it can't bring forgiveness and peace that silences the demonic accusations that control you. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, every other religion says uh, you must obey to be accepted by God, but only Christianity operates off this principle of grace, which says you are accepted by God, therefore obey. So this morning, if if you're struggling with this, I want you to know this is a safe place to, to find help. Talk to me or another elder. We would love to show you uh, the voice of Jesus and point you to Him and how He can silence the accusations that flow through your mind and heart. You know, we have a Jesus who saves. But notice what Jesus does for this man who's been cutting himself in verses 6-13. to 13. Here we find that the, the legion of doom, these, demo- these demons, they are terrified before Jesus in verses 6 down to 13. Look what he says. It says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For what he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, I think we learn a lot about the depths of this demon-possessed man here. And to unlock just how profound this possession was, we need to understand here that it's the demons who have possessed this man to the extent that they are actually the ones speaking through him to Jesus. They're they're the ones that are having the conversation. And in verse 9, they tell Jesus, when he asks what their name is, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, if you know anything about Roman military, a Roman legion would have been about four to 6,000 soldiers, which tips us off that either some of these demons uh, later are going to ride piggyback down to the river, uh, or, or it just means that there were a lot of demons in this man. Either way, take note of the power of Jesus before an army of demons that no man could restrain. See, that tips us off that Jesus is no mere man. And I love this turn of events here. We have a man who's been crying day and night. And now notice that it's the demons that are crying before Jesus. Crying out and asking for mercy before Him. I mean, isn't that that interesting? These tormentors are begging Jesus for mercy. And isn't it interesting that the demons themselves don't have a theological problem with Jesus bringing both God's wrath and God's mercy? Like they know there's nowhere else to go for mercy except this man and this God. So they asked to be sent into a herd of 2,000 pigs, which immediately run off a cliff and down into the Sea of Galilee and drown. 
I've seen this cliff where they, they ran down and they committed uh, pig suicide. Like, I've been there. This happened. 2,000 pigs down in the water. Shouldn't drink the water after that, right? I mean, really bad thing. Now, let me just encourage you not to get too caught up here in, in all kinds of questions that, that might arise that really aren't the point of the text, right? So as you're reading this, you might be asking yourself, did the pigs commit suicide? Or did the demons die with the pigs? Or can spirits live without a host? Or is this just like really bad treatment of pigs and I don't know how I feel about this? Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, is this where the term piggyback came from? Like, that's not really what we're supposed to be thinking here, right? We're, we're trying to understand what, what is being shown to us about the nature of who Jesus is. See, the, the point is not any of these things. What's the point? Jesus is. Jesus' power is the point. One Jesus sends thousands of demons running for fear of torment. Do you see it? Like, maybe you're scared of darkness. Well, catch this. You know someone who the darkness is scared of. That's Jesus, who is the Christ. And here, in the midst of this amazing display of the power of Jesus, there's a man who is rescued out of this great darkness. And don't miss the significance of this man. This is a beautiful picture of salvation that it might be hard for us To understand as Americans looking back at a Jewish culture. But remember this man and the significance of who he is. This man, from a Jewish perspective, is an unclean Gentile that's dirtier than a dog, a non-human. Living in an unclean graveyard. In an unclean land. Surrounded by pigs, which by the way are unclean. And possessed by thousands of unclean spirits. I see, unclean, that's an interesting word to Jews. It really speaks of that which is not set aside for a a special purpose by God. Uh, These were common things, uh, sometimes sinful, sometimes common, but they were not considered to be clean. And here, brothers and sisters, take note. There was a deeply sinful, unclean man living in an unclean land who even his own unclean people didn't want to touch. Do you see it? How deeply unclean he was. And catch this. Don't miss it. Jesus came for him. No human person could save him. He could not save himself. But Jesus, the God-man, could. Because Jesus is powerful to save. Now I think we have many things that we could see here that are, are applicable to us. I mean, one, I don't have time to tarry here. But how amazing is it that those demons thought they could beat Jesus by jumping into some pigs and escaping. And that very instrument that they thought would lead to their victory led to their death. Boy, doesn't that sound like a, a foreshadowing of the cross. But we see many other things. Did you, did you know that no one here, as we look at this man, this unclean man who Jesus came from, did you know that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace? Now, maybe you need to hear that as a non-Christian today. That you are not beyond... The reach of God's grace. Not only that, I think we as Christians, brothers and sisters, we need to hear this. You know, I, I would love this morning, come in close, for this text to become like rebar and cement in your souls. I, I would love for this text about God and Jesus Christ running after this man and dispelling demons to save him, to pluck him out of darkness, to become a text that brings us great hope 
that becomes like rebar in your spine, like the reinforcing steel bar and cement, strengthening your hope for reaching the lost with the hope of the gospel. Maybe you think your kid is too far from God and have lost hope and have quit praying. You need to be encouraged this morning to know that, that nothing is beyond the ability of God. Maybe you have a coworker or a friend who you doubt that can be reached with the gospel. Friend, just remember, you sow and God grows. And He has been known to grow a rich harvest in some of the strangest, most unlikely places. See, this reality is the reality that has sent missionaries into the past, into difficult, dark lands. Uh, there was a time, if you can imagine, when going on missions wasn't cool. Uh, William Carey was a young pastor, and he went to a group of pastors, and he was saying, I've been reading the Bible and getting excited about telling people about Jesus, and I feel like maybe we should tell people who are not white about Jesus. And the response that he got from his friends who were pastors and older, uh, this was their response, I kid you not, sit down. <laughs> like, they weren't excited and like, I'm loving this enthusiasm, yeah, what are we going to do? He was like, sit down. If God wants to save him, he'll do it. He doesn't need our help. William Carey was not satisfied with that because he understood the gospel about how God was creating a new humanity in Christ. And he created the first mission-sending uh, agency uh, of the time that became, he became the father of modern missionaries. And when he preached to a gathering of men and was trying to fire and rev them up for going out and seeking and saving the lost, he preached a message in which he told them two things. He said, I want you to expect great things from God, and I want you to attempt great things for God. Let me ask you, Christian brothers and sisters, is that where you are at this morning? Are you at a place where you expect great things from God? Or are you in a place where you also attempt great things for God? See, I think that if you expect great things from God, you will attempt great things for God. And maybe this morning, the reason that neither of those statements speak of you, if they don't, it could be, it just might be this morning, because you have started to buy into the accusations that you were, hear, you were hearing from demonic presences and forces. You are not believing in the Word of God that gives us hope, that tells us that God does succeed, that He does win, that He will take His gospel to the ends of the earth, that people on that last day, when we stand before the throne of heaven, will be there from every tribe and tongue and nation. It, maybe we've just stopped believing that. And maybe if we don't believe that God is able to do that, maybe we doubt that He's able to save our next door neighbor. It could just be this morning that we need to be re-enthralled and re-engaged with who God is and who Christ is and His power and His ability to save those who seem farthest from God. So let me just ask you this morning, who has God put in your life that you haven't shared Christ with because you fear that they are unretrievable, that they are unreachable? Catch what happens to this demon-possessed man who nobody thought had a shot and be encouraged. That could be your neighbor. That could be your friend. Notice what happens. This is amazing. This guy's reality is changed. His identity is changed forever. His life direction, it is re-altered. Check out what happens in verses 14 to 20. Jesus actually sends an unclean man to share what Jesus did with unclean people. Jesus sends an unclean man to share what Jesus did with unclean people. Look at verses 14 to 20. What a turn of events. It says the herdsman fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, 
and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Did you catch that? Uh, they, they were not scared. They were not terrified uh, uh, whenever they saw this man Legion, right? Who had thousands of demons in him. Not scared. Uh, they came and they saw Legion after he had been released from the bondage of these demons, and then they were really scared, right? That's exactly the kind of fear that came over them. It was the power of Christ. So catch this. These pig farmers, they they ran when they saw what Jesus did to that demon-possessed man and the pigs. Now, maybe it was because they asked Jesus to leave because it wasn't good for their pigs, and they were worried about their pigs. Maybe that's why they wanted Jesus to leave. But notice that they are terrified before the presence of Jesus. And we see this in a number of ways. Uh, They fled. They ran the scene in verse 14. They were afraid in verse 15. And in verse 17, they begged Jesus to depart. See, the power of Jesus terrified the audience. But guess who wasn't scared? Did you catch? There There was a person who was not fearful in this story. Yeah, there was somebody who wasn't fearful. It was the man who had been possessed by demons. He didn't beg Jesus to go. Now we're told that he begged that he might be with Jesus. Do you see it? I'm not begging you away, I'm begging you close. See, he didn't fear that Christianity would be a straitjacket or that it would war against his happiness. No, he had experienced the misery of being separated from God in his sin, in his demonic oppression, under the rule of Satan. And he knew that holiness was the only way to happiness. And his great desire was just to be with Jesus. Wherever he was going, this man wanted to go. Catch what happens. Jesus does something very interesting. He turns to this demoniac. And he turns this demoniac into a disciple. Did you see it? He says, you're no longer going to be known as as the guy who is a demoniac. You're going to be known as the guy who was a demoniac, but now is a disciple for Jesus Christ. What an identity change in just a few verses. And he might have been the first missionary to the Gentiles here. Of course, he needed to hear of Christ's death and resurrection later. But here, Jesus tells him to go and tell it on a mountain. Now, you, you notice up to this point, he's been telling everybody really just to be quiet about who Jesus is. And here you have this Gentile, this super unclean guy in an unclean land. And he says, I tell you what, I'm just going to take the safety off. You just let everybody know. Let them know who I am. Go and tell what I have done for you. I mean, what a picture. He becomes an ambassador of God amongst an unclean people. And Jesus released this man to make disciples of those who were far from God. And who better to do that than this man? Somebody's asking this morning, what's keeping you from going and telling it on a mountain? Could it be that maybe this morning the accuser has blinded you or deafened you to the voice of God. And so that you, you're not being released day by day to go and tell others about what Christ has done for you. Because all you can think about is that endless loop of accusations about how you are insignificant, unloved, and unable. 
Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that we have received a better word from heaven in Jesus Christ. We are children of the living God. And so maybe this morning, you just need to sharpen your sword a little bit and recognize that God has given you the resources to fight back that voice of accusation. And you need to get to war every morning as you wake up. And you need to look freshly to God's word, which is his sword, the sword of the spirit. And you need to fight back at those accusations that are hurled your way. And trust me, they are hurled your way every single morning. So how do you do that? Well, let me give you uh, five lies, half-truths and lies that uh, are given to you, that are given to me. There are more. I could, I could do more. But I just want to give you five and demonstrate for you how we are to use the Bible, God's Word, to fend off, fight off those accusations that are hurled your way that seek to paralyze you rather than release you. Okay? So here's five really quickly. One, God rejects you. God doesn't want anything to do with you. Look at your life. He has rejected you. There's no hope. That's a lie. That's a lie, okay? Let me just be clear. What's the truth? God has adopted you. as sons and daughters of the living God, and He has an inheritance for you in heaven. And He loves you with the same love that He has for His very Son, whom He has loved eternally since eternity's past. In perfect unity with Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that divine love has been shed upon you. Uh, Romans 8, 14. For all, Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we, we are children of God, Satan. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Lie number two. My sin is too great for God to forgive me. You know, I'm very special as a sinner. I've sinned in ways that most don't. Uh, demons are telling me I, I really am too sinful to be loved by a holy God. Doesn't work that way. I know that Jesus saves good people. You know, that's mostly what I see is good people getting saved. He doesn't save people like me. My sin is just too great for God to forgive me. I'm too guilty to be forgiven. God's response, my grace is greater than your sin. My grace is greater than your sin. He tells us in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You have a better righteousness than your own. You have the righteousness of my son, Jesus, who has obeyed me from the beginning to the end. Maybe this morning you're hearing this constant thought in your heart about how filthy and ashamed you are. And you, you think, I, I'm so filthy and ashamed I can never be cleansed of this. First John 1.9 promises, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that Jesus cleans us. We might not feel cleaned, but He cleans us. See, here when He says He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all means all. It's not just some or part of my unrighteousness can be covered by Jesus. Thousands of demons are no match for Jesus. Jesus says He will cleanse me of all unrighteousness. 
Maybe this morning you're thinking to yourself, I've lost my salvation. Like you don't know, Pastor, how I've sinned. You don't know about how I doubt and I struggle to put my confidence in Christ. I know he died on the cross and he was raised publicly from the dead before a host of witnesses. I struggle to believe and I, I just believe I've, I've walked with him. Maybe I've sinned recently and he can't forgive me or, or maybe he didn't know that whenever I first put my faith in Christ and maybe I've just, I've lost my salvation. I don't know if I can get it back. And we know that we are told that for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, who have truly believed in him, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 33 to 39. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can shut up now, demons. There's nothing that separates me from the love of God. Or maybe this morning you're thinking to yourself, I have no future or hope. You haven't seen my investments lately, Pastor. Um, You have not seen the family that I have lost. I feel like I have no hope or future. And yet Jesus comes back and says, of course, you have a family. I've given you the church. But not only that, I've given you an indestructible inheritance. First Peter 1, 3 to 5. He has caused us to be born again. To what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you and me, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We experience salvation now, but there's a greater salvation that is to come when Jesus returns. We've only seen the basement. Do you hear me? This life, I don't care how good your life is right now. It is the basement. The ceiling is coming. And until then, we are promised the love of God on us, never to abandon us. God loves people like you and me. And He releases us to make great the name of His Son, Christ. Don't you want to make much of that Christ that has promised us so much? Friends, that's what we've been called to do. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.